Welcome to Demonosophy, and my guest this evening is again the great Stephen E. Flowers, here to talk to us about his new book, The Occult Roots of Bolshevism, From Cosmist Philosophy to Magical Marxism. Welcome, Dr. Flowers. Well, I'm glad to be here. It's a great uh, place you have. <laughs> it's great to have you back. I always, always appreciate uh, you coming to visit and sharing your, your insights and, and wisdom with us here. Um, so, you know, t tell us about the new book. Tell us about the occult roots of Bolshevism. Well, it's one of those things where it's a subject that hasn't ever been really uh, exploited, you know, as far as research is concerned uh, at a popular level, uh, certainly, and uh, taking this particular uh look at it is something new because people think, well, how could there possibly be uh, the uh, communism, Bolshevism is totally materialistic and that has nothing to do with occultism. And of course that stems from the fact that people don't really have a solid idea of the definition of occultism being uh, concepts, ideas applied that are uh, either uh, kinds of knowledge that has been superseded and is now no longer a part of the establishment, such as how uh, astronomy and astrology and that sort of thing, or are ideas that are speculative and, uh, and just not established as uh, something someone believes in or is not a part of consensus reality. And uh, we see that... Uh, Russia, Russian cosmism uh, in the 19th century and early 20th century played a part in the uh, the uh, Russian underground, if you will, and then Marx himself held ideas that are only logical, scientific, and reasonable because they are asserted to be so, but not because they actually are so in any way. It's rather like uh, Christians saying, well, it's obvious what that the, the Bible is true or whatever. They just assert its truth. But uh, there's no uh, overt or, or concrete evidence to make that knowledge uh, as concrete as they would have you believe. And certainly Marxism falls into that category. And so from all of these different angles, I started to look at uh, Bolshevism, Russian culture uh, as an application of Marxist ideas, as well as the cosmist uh, underground that was much more uh, influential on the Bolsheviks than most people uh, realize. There was one uh, person named Alexander Bogdanov who... Uh, was actually the rival of Lenin for leadership of the party. And uh, he was a cosmist and uh, wrote a science fiction novel called Red Star in 1905. 
and it's about a uh, Russian revolutionary who's taken to Mars, and there he's shown the perfect uh, society uh, according to co- communist principles, etc. And then he, uh, this character, returns to Earth and, and tries to implement these ideas on Earth. And so it's a science fiction sort of utopian kind of novel, but it, in 1905 it was so uh, popular that uh, Red Star, of course, becomes the emblem of the Red Army and of uh, the whole uh, movement, and it was because of the romantic uh, adherence uh, to these ideas of this science fiction novel that uh, there that was the power behind that image. And so uh, this uh, guy, he, he was a cosmist. He believed in the, which basically, let's say, what cosmism, there were numerous uh, thinkers in Russia who uh, led by Fyodor Fyodorov uh, and uh, Nikolai Fyodorov. And he, he was a, a man who believed in the, the idea that man, human beings, as we live, uh, our bodies today can be made immortal, and actually science will be able to resurrect the dead and make them immortal. And uh, and uh, other cosmists forward in the idea of space travel, because see, if you make everyone immortal, and everyone who ever lived immortal, the planet's going to be too crowded so therefore we need to go into outer space and colonize other planets you see and the russians were into this sort of thing already in the 19th century and so uh these ideas of actually making man immortal and and colonizing space and such things were uh, a part of the cosmist movement. And the Bolsheviks were also attached to this idea, so much so that uh, their space program was totally fixated on going to Mars. And it wasn't until 1964, thereabouts, that they decided to change their objective and get into the race for the moon with the Americans. But they had lost so much time with this impossible task that uh, that they, they that was one of their hundreds of fatal errors that made them fail at what they were trying to do and uh, so uh, all of these ideas play a part in the the occult world of this uh, russian uh, war, uh bolshevik russian kind of uh, subculture that became the establishment of course there so i have a i have a question for you in in that 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 comes out of that specifically as it pertains to cosmism and like Fedorov's idea that you know the common task that everyone can eventually be resurrected what what would you say to someone? Because this is what I found when when I talk about these ideas, or people are are, are are exposed to this idea. Sometimes people are like drawn into that. They like that's awesome. They like that. Like that's kind of uh, it kind of resonates as a pathway towards immortality. Do you think that like some of those those futuristic the futurist ideas? Does that have relevance for someone who's, say, pursuing individual, personal, you know, immortality through, you know, whatever, left-hand path initiation? 
is, is that relevant, or is it something that's really tied in with this sort of collectivist thing that leads to, you know, Bolshevism and, you know, um, all of that piece of it? Does that make sense? Well, yeah, I don't know how, since people like Fyodorov were really religious people, uh, orthodox uh, religion, you know, as far as Russian orthodoxy, that was the, the as Christian to them, it was a, a, a Christian thing. But see, the uh, we know that the Bolsheviks, the inner the actual party members, uh, this atheism and things like that were uh, were merely a tool, like so many things that a big government anywhere does, is uh, they have, you know, rules for thee, but not for me. We're kind of used to that around here. And, uh, you know, and it was the same thing. I mean, just like how, how did uh, Putin just all of a sudden become an orthodox uh, uh, adherent after being brought mm -hmm. up in the Soviet system and being a KGB officer and all that kind of a thing, you'd think he would have, that would have been, he, he was never exposed to that, someone might say, but that's not true. I mean, it was a secret teaching, if you will, behind the scenes in the Russian, the new aristocracy, which was the Communist Party, but they used these ideas as uh, just another tool to bludgeon the majority the people with, and uh, they weren't really required. Except, of course, if someone like Stalin would just say, "Well, I don't like you, and I saw you praying the other day, so I think you need to be liquidated." You know, he could use it as an excuse at any time, just like anything else in these kind mm -hmm. of systems. But it really, I remember seeing, I think it was uh, Chernyenko, uh, one of those last uh, leaders of the Communist Party in the Soviet Union, uh, had had his funeral. I saw, was watching it live or whatever, back in the 80s or whenever it was, and uh you know, his, his wife, his widow was bending over his open casket and she was had some kind of cross in her hand and she was making all kinds of religious gesticulations and such, you know, these orthodox prayers and such. And I thought, wait a minute, this doesn't compute in my mind, right? That these people have had 70 years of atheism and these are the leaders, these people should believe that. And, and I re realized and later learned, of course, that, the, again, those rules don't apply to them. Mm -hmm. you know, they did what they wanted, and except insofar, again, if you were just disliked by someone with power, then that might be used like anything else might be used against you, you know. I saw in writing the yeah. book, I saw time after time, these people who did great things for the country, you know, for the party, for the regime, uh, would run afoul for whatever reason of the higher-ups, and they would be sent to the gulag, or they would be executed. Even people who were high up KGB and KVD, uh, Officers, etc. It didn't matter if you ran afoul; that was it. You know. Yeah. 
And uh, so, so I did it you're, by you're the same also, token. People could ruin everything and still, he's the greatest guy in the world. He's just wonderful and is just causing disaster right and left. But, you know, he's well-liked by, uh, by Stalin or whoever, so he can't do no wrong. Yeah, so you also talk about um, the, the theories of uh, Lysenko. Uh-huh. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, he talked he had an impact on uh, destroying agriculture. Yeah, he, but he came up with a theory, or he espoused a theory of uh, botany, of a plant rearing and, and so forth and so on, of the wheat crop that brought into to the theory the idea of class and mark and the dialectic, the historical dialectic. He, he made a, a polity, politicized the wheat plant and created a fairy tale for that. And Stalin really liked that. He thought that was great. So he put him in charge of everything having to do with the uh, uh, wheat crop, and he went for decades ruining it with these crazy theories. But because the theory was was very favorable to the political uh, powers that be, it just it was to their taste and to their liking, uh, then they, uh, the, he, he remained in power throughout and was never ostracized, except when he died, uh, he was hardly noticed because people knew what he had done, you know. Uh, but harm, I, I realized when watching these things, or reading these things, uh, the, the people that these political operatives uh, propose to be helping and be, be their clients, if you will, the people they're fighting for, you know, are the ones that suffer the most because they can, they, they're just going to take as long as, as long as uh, I, the, the leader says, I hate who you hate. Then mm -hmm. he, that leader can do no wrong. You know, as long as he's hurting the aristocracy or in the beginning or, or the, the capitalists or the Jews or whatever it was that the people didn't particularly like, as long as he's acting against the people I don't like, then I like him. He's okay. Mm -hmm. You know? Right. And uh, but then, that's what's then he, never pays the, he never pays the price, though. Like, whenever, no. they, you know, whenever there is this devastation or the, the result of war or whatever, it's yeah, like who the gets leadership. Hurt? Just peasants they and never workers get getting hurt. Yeah. You know, they can take him. We don't care about that. They're our pawns, you know. Right. We're, they can get hurt and keep hurting, and they'll never rebel against us because we've got their number. So, uh, <laughs> yeah. But uh, how, how much of what we see in the, studying the Soviet Union and the whole movement are, uh, you know, Nazis the same way, you know, just how they uh, maintained control you know, through uh, means that are uh, uh, not foreign to things that we see in our, our own country. You know, it's just a lighter, you know, gentler form, if you will. Yeah. So can you, can you talk a little bit about, like, Marxist occultism uh -huh. and... 
you know, the mystical, mystical ideas being called scientific? Like what sorts of, what sorts of things do well, they do? If we have the uh, basic cos cosmology of Marxism, uh, for example, uh, Marx was a, uh, a philosopher, he's a doctor of philosophy, he wrote his dissertation on the Epicureans, who were the ancient uh, uh, Greek materialists who uh, gave us the atomic theory, the idea that they believed that, that everything was made up of little particles so small we can't divide them. That's what atomos means, indivisible particles. And, uh, you know, he, and of course, where, what evidence did they have for this? Nothing. It was just a... Uh, uh, an idea, uh, a, a speculation. Now, in that case, it had a grain of truth to it, obviously, but it didn't. There was that was not based on any evidence. It was just Greek thinkers sitting around pondering things and imagining what if this. Uh, and sometimes that's like it is with occult ideas. That is hidden. Who, who, the average Greek, what? Everything is made up of little things, and the gods, too, are made up of these, and they will die, and it, all, all these are crazy ideas that you have here, as the average Greek of uh, over 2,000 years ago would have thought. And Marx was fascinated by this, of course, that is materialism, uh, this was pure materialism. There is no spiritual world. Everything is atoms, some closer together than others, but uh, and so they seem to be uh, immaterial, but they're gaseous instead of solid, that sort of thing. Now, so he, he believed that uh, with good reason, since the atomic theory starts to be shown to be have some basis in hard science as time goes on. Uh, but uh, at the same time, he uh, adopted other ideas, such as from uh, Hegel, the idea of uh, the dialectic. The, so he put uh, he Hegel is not a materialist, but but that's the thing. He put these ideas with uh, a materialism, and he said, "Well, now we have a material dialectic, a historical dialectic, and that there will be you know, there is this." Uh, a plan, or there's a, actually not a plan, uh, because that implies a planner, rather, uh, history, uh, and the world is a kind of an organism that has a uh, beginning, and then it grows, and it evolves through a dialectic, through a thesis, antithesis, and synthesis going through time. And, and now this is all people are nodding their head going, yeah, that sounds like Well, there's no basis for this idea scientifically. It's just a useful idea. Uh, Marx was a brilliant student in school of, of Christianity, which is a religion he was brought up in. And, you know, and so he was influenced by that, obviously, also. So you see that uh, if you look at Marxism as a historical uh, developmental model, it's basically the same as you find in Christianity. That is, there was a uh, time in the past in which uh, there was no private property, everything was held in common, and it was a communist paradise. And uh, then there came uh, what was the equivalent of original sin, which was the idea of private property, 
And then there was a inevitable evolution uh, historically in an organic kind of model by which uh, we go from a slave state to a feudal state to a capitalist state. And then inevitably there will be a socialist state because capitalism will will collapse of its own weight, is his theory. And then there will be a communist coming of communism, but it really requires someone to understand and for to be revealed to you this truth that I have just told you, and that is Karl Marx himself. He comes and he is the equivalent of, of a Christ figure who comes and gives the good news of the historical dialectic, of the revolution, etc., and he reveals it to the uh, unwashed masses so that they can act on this in, in revolution. And at that point, then, the, the, uh, the, the uh, revolution will begin, and there will be this millennial time period, uh, dictatorship of the proletariat and all of that, and so then, therefore, a, a new world of communist uh, utopia will be instituted. Back in the days when I was in the 60s and early 70s and so forth, uh, tooling around and uh, thinking about these sorts of things, you know, as somebody would say to somebody from Hungary or Poland or wherever, you know, you in the communist countries, so this is not a communist country. That is for the future. We are a socialist state, but, but communism is the end. That's when everything, again, the state withers away, and there is uh, all properties held in common, and all people are equal. Now, all of that, you see, is, uh, is mystical as any other uh, millennialist kind of uh, cult of the Middle Ages or whatever. It's all the same kind of mythology. The difference, of course, is that the Bolshevik knows it's a lie. Mm -hmm. You can tell that historically because when the racket was no longer as profitable as it probably could have been, they just gave it up, right? Mm -hmm. They didn't really believe it any more than... Uh, you know, Chernyenko's widow believed in Bolshevism when she was praying her Orthodox prayers. Uh, they knew this is a, a, a magical tool to use uh, against our enemies and uh, most especially against our friends. You know, uh -huh. the people who love us and who are loyal to us, they'll take anything. And so we can exploit uh -huh. them uh, just like what's going on now, you know, their, their way of fighting, you know. I mean, in the, on the Russian front, and the, you know, Germans versus the Russians, I mean, the Germans were killing them 10 to 1. But we got 20. Mm -hmm. I don't care, mm -hmm. you know. Right. And so that's our same thing. That's sort of a Marxist. They have certain calculations, like how many... Of the if when a revolution comes, how much, how what percentage of the population do you need to get rid of? Mm -hmm. You know, in order to make the transition smoother, because if you just let everyone continue, they're going to cause friction. So you need to get yeah. rid of whether it was in Russia, whether it was in China, wherever it's part of the, uh, you know, part of the formula. So. Yeah. Uh, 
that that's uh, but but again we're thinking oh this all sounds like it's re, re you know someone might fall into the trap of thinking that all sounds very reasonable but really it's just as mad as any cult you'll ever find it's just that mm-hmm. people did it and to a certain extent were successful for a while but of course we see that because it was unreasonable and typical of a kind of a cult mentality uh, projected into the, a collective reality uh, where those these ideas are really not correct or, or not very beneficial. There are more things, uh, cult ideas are, or can be uh, useful to individuals, but when you try to apply it over an entire society, uh, you, first, coercion and force have to be used to make it happen, and second of all, because it is not really reasonable or uh, 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 a very healthy thing for uh, people's lives, it, it will inevitably, I suppose, history seems to show, end in failure. And uh, the Russians, you know, certainly demonstrated that. Except, of course, someone might, a a very cynical person might point out that, well, all they did was change their their racket, you know, from being a Bolshevik to being a Russian nationalist kind of model. But uh, I would again point out, uh, if you look at Russian history of the present moment, it's the world's largest country, incredible amounts of incredible human resources, brilliant people, great uh, ability, everything, what I would say is just entirely squandered. Mm-hmm. You know, just waste, waste everywhere. You know, yeah. it could be great, but is not yeah. because it's not, it's not, doesn't have a, a, a beneficial uh, model for government. So, right. So that's no. The it's another great. It's a great example of how like uh, coercion, just in, in 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 principle, just has a has a destructive influence, even if it was the best intentions. Yeah. It, but but I but uh, it, I, again, I think a lot of what you're uncovering here is that quite often there's really not the best intentions underneath no. it. Underneath it all is really the same selfish selfish uh, and, and, and destructive mm-hmm. intentions that we find um, uh, all, all the time. Um, right. And, and another that thing be, that you brought up... Yeah. Go ahead. Go ahead. Yeah. Well, I was going to say another thing that you brought up is in this book is, is this idea of red magic, which I uh-huh. found just incredibly interesting. Could you, could you elaborate a little bit on that? Right. Well, if you uh, read magic hinges on some of the same uh, ideas that you find in uh, uh, medieval Christianity, but uh, where in any event, just mechanically, where uh, a person will claim to be fi- uh, be defending or being uh, the agent for some. Uh, downtrodden or, or or person or group of people who are in need of your help you see who need who can't survive without you that says away you can't make it but I will come here and I will lead this revolution I will do these things and I will then uh, 
make you uh, uh, whole. I, I will fix it for you uh, since you can't do it yourself. And that's what the, the revolution comes to. All these aristocrats and capitalists are exploiting you. So we're going to have this revolution and we're going to turn this over to you, to the people. But of course, it's just a mechanism for that agent, the apparatchik, to gain all of the power because they are gangsters. And of course, the ancient Romans, the philosophers, Porphyry and others, look at early Christians and said, this, these are a, a gang. This is a criminal gang. They are foreigners, they are slaves, a lot of them, but they, are, they, they worship an executed criminal. They meet in graveyards. Uh, they're bent on taking over the empire by hook or crook. And they were right, weren't they? Uh, mm -hmm. But that that was the idea that they they were. But see, the Christians were saying, "Oh no, we're here to to help the downtrodden, the masses, etc." Of course, look at the Middle Ages when they get control. Uh, you think the peasants were any better off, or anybody was any better off? No, that wasn't the mm -hmm. point. It was to get and keep power for the gang. Uh, mm -hmm. The, and any gangster would sit there and go, hmm. well, like Stalin was a bank robber. He was what he was. You know, that was his specialty. He, he robbed the, he, uh, a, a muscle man. And, uh, and you know, Lenin didn't want him to take over, and it was like he couldn't communicate at the end there to say, no, not Stalin, you know, anybody but him. Mm -hmm. uh, and But it didn't work. Uh, but the uh, point was that you see... Uh, the a gang might say, well, we're going to take this turf, you know, we're going to take this territory to do our deal to our whatever our racket is. And, you know, we're going to have the east side. And you take the wait a minute. These people pause and say, no, let's take the whole thing. The whole country and everything in it, every means of production, every piece of property, and the and the people that live in it will become our property. Now, that sounds a whole lot like the aristocracy of the Middle Ages. And that's all that really mm -hmm. the Bolsheviks were, a new aristocracy, mm -hmm. you know, that were a member of this uh self-selected group so in that regard the that and that's the practice of this red magic where you use the not just pure brute force that's why it's magic and not just uh military conquest you have to win over the hearts and minds of the people and make the masses believe that you were working for them and that they need you you see, and and mm -hmm. so it's a mind altering, a mind changing technology, and mm -hmm. uh, you see that Hitler used the same kind of thing. That just uh, in a way, Hitler used a way that was a more uh, uh, understandable because he, he used these external symbols so brilliantly, the the uniforms, the rituals of this, that, whereas the Bolsheviks were really more more subtle than that, really. Uh, 
You know, they probably had less to work that they had to win over being basically a medieval state they were working with, whereas Germany was one of the most modern countries in the world, if not the most. So it was a different kind of field of operation uh, where these two things were op- where we were at work. But uh, that's the essence of red magic. There's people, even in an office place, and you know, say, well, I'm going to get the reputation for being, you know, for the, the for the little guy and help him. and but Just any kind of way to make yourself look good and use it as leverage to get power over others and then get into position to get power and then, of course, keep it through through uh, exaggerated claims of, uh, of your, uh, you know, your moral superiority or whatever. So uh, it did not... Do you think it's a good way to try and achieve power, or is it a because you know when and maybe this is the situation with the with the with the Bolsheviks in in reality is that when you gain power based upon illusions and lies, uh-huh. well, you end up more. You have to support all of those illusions and lies. You have to use all of your energy and resources to support all those illusions and lies. And you're always worried. You always, as an individual, you always have that in your mind. You always have that, you know, what if they find me out? You know? Right, and they're going to find you out because the things you're claiming you're going to fix, you can't fix. Because really, it, you're not spending any of your resources, intellectual resources, into making things work because you got it easy. If it doesn't work, we'll just blame somebody else. Mm-hmm. You know, if the crops don't come in, it's because of those, you know, saboteurs, you know, capitalists from America, whatever, foreign saboteurs are causing all this to go wrong, you know, and that's what's going yeah. on. It's just like in the Middle Ages. Oh, what, why won't the, the cow dried? Oh, it must be a witch, you know. Just no, right. no, uh, it's kind of odd. It's like there were occult connections to uh, some of these Bolsheviks in the uh, Lenin, his grandmother had been uh, executed, as I recall, you know, as a witch. Uh, and uh, Stalin supposedly had a, a woman, I have a picture of her in the book, you know, that who was his like spiritual advisor, you know, and it was pointed out that uh, almost no pictures of Stalin are genuine. Even the guy who stood up on the on Lenin's tomb at the May Day thing. It was generally a uh, uh, a double and not the actual yeah. stone. And that was because he was afraid of witchcraft, of, of curses and things like that. He was a, a Georgian, you know, I mean, <laughs> just a country, a far, you know, guy from Georgia. And so, uh, you know, all these kind of things were common enough, I guess, but there was uh, these kind of things were going on. But it's under uh, the, the the good government or good, you have to, to do the right thing. You have to be successful. You have to have the, uh, it's a higher, much, much more uh, complicated form of uh, uh, magic initiation to make something work well. Uh, uh-huh. And uh, as opposed to just saying, "Well, it, we'll all we got to do is just convince them," 
you know, uh, just that uh, what they think is true is not true and that uh, someone else is to blame. That's the one trail. If we just have that trick in our, you know, toolbox, we, we can be, we can make it, you know, we, it'll be okay. But, I mean, as far as I'm concerned, like I pointed out this, like when you're in Russia or Moscow, you know, in uh, 1965 or whatever, if you saw an automobile driving down the road, you know, you knew that was a party guy in that thing. You know, it wasn't, no, no common people had automobiles, right? And so mm-hmm. you see the, the you know, a, a, a convoy of, the cars coming into town, that was all just a, uh, just like in the Middle Ages with the Tsar and his, uh, you know, people. Uh, it was the same thing. It was just substituting one aristocracy for the other. And the people don't see that. You know, they think, mm-hmm. oh, there are our heroes. <laughs> yeah. You know, because that's the yeah. one trick they learned, uh, how to make them believe this lie. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's 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 really sad. Um, and one thing that I really enjoyed in this book, I thought was really delightful, is your discussion about your days as an anti-communist freedom <laughs> fighter. <laughs> yeah, right. that's where you, uh, you got, little, the, you got the, hyperbole there. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, I you know I had the opportunity. I was a you know, fantasized when I was in high school. It was the days of, uh, uh, you know, the the the, the Czech, uh, the Prague Spring. You know, the where the Pro, where the Czechs were kind of revolting in '68, and I was just in just starting high school or something about then. And it was all very romanticized in my mind, uh, all that world. And and so when I was over there, when after I graduated high school, I. Uh, you know, a guy uh, was a friend of mine there at the German language school, and uh, he was from Hungary. And uh, what had happened to him, see, he had escaped from Hungary. This was 1971. And uh, he uh, was for. Forbidden from studying medicine because his mother was an ethnic German, and they had uh, ethnic sort of uh, policies because the Germans had German-speaking people. And when I say German, I don't mean a German person from the state of Germany, but just a German language person, Austrian, whatever. of course, had ruled Hungary mainly, and so they were trying to set the you know affirmative action, if you will. So you know, only pure Hungarians again you know, will get preference for these plum positions uh, at the medical school. So he couldn't study, so he escaped. And he had a whole bunch of friends who were also trying to escape, and so they needed information. Of course, there was no you couldn't write. They opened all the letters. They didn't, you know, there was no sneaking around. He just opened the letter and sent them in packages. It was like nothing. You know, you cannot communicate with anybody there, uh, either by writing or uh, telephone. And so uh, they had to have couriers go in to communicate vital information to these people who are trying to escape. And so I volunteered to do this <laughs> as an 18-year-old idiot. Okay, you know, 18-year-olds will do anything. You know, Vietnam was full of them. And so uh, so here I am. You know, I go there and uh, get the message out to them. Now, I, I went to a town 
south of Budapest where tourists weren't supposed to be. You know, you have this sort of thing where you can only go to these certain places. But I just bought a ticket and went. And uh, so I was hanging out there for a couple of days and then one morning in this place where I was staying, you know, knock, you know, a proverbial knock, you know, before Santa mm-hmm. comes at the door, bang, bang, bang. Okay. You know, and I had to go down to the police station. And I said, well, that was, you know, this guy's father went, and he was a physician and so forth. That's probably what really helped me that, you know, he was well connected. But uh, here is this is like this building, this gray building with a giant red star on the top of it. Here you go in there. And they just kind of gave me the once over, you know, looked at my and said, you know, you need to have 24 hours or 12 hours or whatever it was to get out of this country, you know. So uh, I just left, you know, I just took off with the, got in the train and went. But then, of course, the whole story, you have to read it in the book. It's too long, really, to go into the whole thing here. But, uh, you know, when I was just about to cross the border back into Austria, they took me off the train and took me over into this little building. And I had it was in there, and the train went off and left me. And it was dark, and uh, there I was with all these guys with whatever kind of machine guns they had, you know, standing there at the door. You know, then they started interrogating me. But luckily, I had been told by my friend uh, that, uh, oh, yes, they won't use any rubber hoses or strip search or do all the things they do to us, because you're an American, they won't do that. I was glad it was true. And uh, so, but, you know, they would ask me, you know, did you you have any... And then, so they just kind of said, okay, get back there. This little doodlebug train comes back over the border and sitting there. And then, uh, you think you can go, you know, go on over there and get in that uh, car, then that train, and you'll be on your way. And so I go in there, and I sit down at the back of it. And uh, then through the front door of this car, the guy comes in. And he's like dressed like an Austrian. He's a little guy, but he looks like a gnome or something. He's got the whole Austrian the later hose, you know, the whole thing. This is like he was from the Hofbräu house or something. And uh, he goes, oh, he says, what's happened? I said, well, they were, you know, detaining me. And so we're speaking German. Too. But, you know, they were detaining me, you know, because they thought I had some. Well, I bet you really got away with it, didn't you? Yeah, I bet you fooled them. Well, what you, what you have, really, you know. I said, I didn't have anything. I did have something else stuck in my pants. I did have the message. But, you know, uh and so then he just kind of, you know, was trying to do that. And then he said, okay, you know, and then he left, well, went out the front door. And then I was looking out the window and there he got off the train and went over to that guardhouse, you mm-hmm. know, where I had been held. He was just a guy, I was just their last ditch thing, yeah. you know. Yeah. But so I was uh, lucky, you know, I mean, to never have said the wrong thing. Yeah. So... No, you could have you could have ended up in a in a gulag at a very very <laughs> early age, and you never would have even gotten to write this book. <laughs> yeah, or I'd I'd have had a better one to write. Oh boy, and the scars to prove it. But you know that's uh, that's the kind of stuff. I mean that that's I'm not saying that was anything great, but it was you know for an 18 year old kid with no nothing, you know, just fantasies and you know dreams. 
uh, in his head. Uh, it was a pretty good experience, I guess. Well, it's also, you know, it's, it's, it's a reminder maybe for some of us younger folks that those things are in recent memory and, yeah. you know, are in, in, in our world. And this comes back to what, why I think that this, this book is, like, so important right now is because it, it feels like some of, the, some of that red magic is, is coming back, like it's making a comeback somehow. Um, mm-hmm. Well, it's a, it's a secularized version. It's like a lot of the other things about Marx I was talking about earlier are secularized versions of what the you know, Christians or other cults have practiced in the past. Uh, but the magic or the, the 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 myth that people most readily believe nowadays have to do with money, economics, um, and uh, material things, materialistic things. Those are the more believable myths rather than angels and uh, sons of Hebrew storm gods come to absolve you of your sins and things like that. Uh, so it's uh, the application of a, a magic uh, sorcery of that kind on a collective scale re- requires generally that you tap into a mythology that the masses find appealing. Mm-hmm. And so uh, that, that's essential to that kind of operation. You know, uh, it, it, it's interesting, uh, the uh, writer uh, Thomas Sowell, he talks about, we were talking about like in, in, in modern society, capitalism, there's other ways of finding those, those uh, evils, like creating those evils versus like angels and demons and stuff. And he talks about how certain ethnic groups who are kind of nomadic or semi-nomadic over time have always been easy targets as like, evil capitalist-like influences. And, of course, there's, there's the Jews, but there's also, you know, like, uh, like uh, Vietnamese um, and, and lots of other ethnic groups throughout time who have been mm-hmm. more, mobile, more mobile. And it's really mm-hmm. easy for a local, you know, the local people to say, oh, look, they own every, why do they own every shop on there? Well, because they're ripping us off and everything. And so it's, it's really easy for political figures to turn turn people's anger towards, um, you know, certain outsider groups like that. Right. Yeah, well, that's very uh, typical. Or any, uh, If one is savvy enough to ha- have realize or what, what it is that the people you're trying to manipulate, what they're, what they're afraid of, what they believe, all those things, and uh, then uh, you know what, or that person would know what to say. Like uh, Hitler points out, you know, in, in Mein Kampf, he says, you know, I wasn't an anti-Semite. I wasn't brought up that way, you know, but uh, I realized that uh, in order to forge a national unity among the German people, that was his chief problem, he thought, uh, uh, you know, you have to have a, uh, an enemy, you know, someone that uh, you uh, can blame things on, and that was, there was only one, peop- one people that were for that, and that was, uh, those were the Jews, and at that moment, at that moment, mm-hmm. I became an anti-Semite. So he just mm-hmm. comes right out and says, he doesn't really, I mean, but 
huge numbers of German people, religious people, or whatever kind of people, you know, different things, uh, were, were, you know, anti-Semitic. It wasn't all that uncommon. It was quite common, ordinary kind of prejudice that existed. And so, you know, that, so he said, well, i got to exploit that, you know. That's what I, the tool I've got to use. And uh, he took to it quite uh, enthusiastically. Because so that's a great, great yeah. So that's a great, uh, uh, great segue to start talking about your other great new book that's out, The Occult in National Socialism. 